0: Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 206 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by David Murrah. David Murrah's memoirs, poems, essays, plays, and performances have won wide, critical praise and numerous awards. Their topics range from contemporary Japan to the legacy of the internment camps and the history of Japanese Americans to critical explorations of an increasingly diverse America. He gives presentations at educational institutions, businesses, and other organizations throughout the country. So this is, you know, your bio from your website. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you have a Wikipedia page. I don't know how much you've seen it or read it. Um, that's a pretty humble biography for somebody with some such incredible um, acclaim, but most importantly, important work. So, looking forward to kind of filling in some of those gaps. And I'm, I apologize, I didn't even ask you before we recorded. It seems like a simple last name, but did I pronounce your last name correctly? It's Murrah. Mura All right. Thanks so much again for joining me from the beautiful state of Minnesota. I'd love to ask you about some of your, about growing up. The The book we're mainly going to talk about is the stories whiteness tells itself. And you talked about kind of some of the ways you saw yourself as a kid, but I'd love to know about your reading and writing languages. I'm guessing maybe that Japanese was not spoken widely if at all in your house, but I don't know that for sure. What, what was your relationship with language or languages? And just kind of reading Well, I mean, it,
1: it, as I say at the beginning of the book, trying to explain why I wrote The stories, Whiteness Tells Itself is, you know, I'm a third generation Japanese-American. And my grandfather came to this country in 1898. My paternal grandfather and my maternal grandfather followed soon after. So my family has been in this country for a century and a quarter. Mm. Um, But as many Asian-Americans, people look at me and think I'm a foreigner. my parents at ages 11 and 15 were imprisoned with their families by the US government in World War II um, in concentration camps in desolate areas of the West and the South. And this is a long explanation, but it, it, right. it explains. So they were imprisoned n- not for anything they had done, right? They were 11 and 15. And no Japanese American was ever convicted of any sort of espionage of color. Zero,
0: right? Literally zero. Yes. zero. Zero.
1: And many of them fought bravely uh, for the United States in World War II. So they were imprisoned because of their race and ethnicity. And as I try to explain, if you are imprisoned because you've shoplifted, to show you reform, you get out of prison, you don't shoplift anymore. But what happens if you're in prison because of your race and ethnicity? Hmm. And my parents, both consciously and unconsciously, realized that their being of Japanese ethnicity was why they were in prison. And so they tried to assimilate into a white middle class identity. And they raised me to try to think of myself as a white person. Hmm. Now, they didn't consciously say this, but this was the way I was raised. Mm -hmm. And so my parents, I I thought my parents had actually spoken no Japanese and forgotten all Japanese. It was very interesting. I wrote a book about living in Japan for a year. And Hmm. when they visited, after about a week, my father's Japanese came back. Hmm. But he had never spoken Japanese to me. Wow. And I thought it was lost. Right. Wow. But it was a little boy's Japanese. Japanese is a hierarchical language. Okay. So it sounded odd to the Japanese because here was a grown man speaking like a little boy.
2: Uh-huh. My mother
1: didn't speak. She understood some of it. But she said to me, I wonder how I ever communicated with my mother. Because her mother didn't speak much English. Yeah. Her father had to in order to do the business. Okay. And so I grew up, you know, not speaking any Japanese, not knowing any Japanese, and indeed taking pride in the fact that I knew no Japanese mm-hmm. or anything about Japanese language.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was in, when I was in high school and white friends would say to me, I think of you, David, just like a white person. I would go, that's how I want to be regarded. Mm-hmm. When I met my wife, I said, I'm not a, Jap-, you know, don't think of me Japanese, I'm an American.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it wasn't until my late 20s, When I began to read Black authors, and I suddenly realized, oh, there's a language to talk about the issues of race. I had gone through through an English PhD program and read through the entire Anglo-American canon, which at the time was defined as simply white authors. And so I could have gotten my English PhD, I dropped out, um, without reading any authors of color. And But after I I left graduate school, I started reading Black authors, and I realized, oh, I'm not white. I'm never going to be white. So who the hell am I? What does it mean to be a Japanese American? Hmm. And that was really a a huge shift in the way I approached my own identity, Hmm. in the way I approached my family history, and in the way that I approached my writing.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate that answer. There's, there's a lot there. Um, you were talking about, you know, reading black authors and past the PhD program. You didn't read them in the PhD program. And you write about this in the stories whiteness tells itself about looking back on, you know, Lincoln and, you know, some of these characters held up as, you know, completely pure and, you know, without any wrongs. Do you uh, and you also wrote about some of the books and some of the writing. Are there some pieces that you look back, some texts that you look back at? That you just would totally read differently now, you know that you were re- that you were taught as part of the quote unquote canon, which, like you said, is basically the Anglo-American canon. You know. Well, just- I, I I think
1: you know, for instance, when I was a kid, I would read these biographies um, about the youth of famous Americans, like George Washington, or Thomas Jefferson, or mm-hmm. Daniel Boone. Mm-hmm. You know. Or- And so when the story's whiteness tells itself, I say, you know, I understand how white people think because I was raised to think of myself as just like white people. Mm -hmm. And I I grew up with the same films and books, you you know, movies about Lincoln. I remember admiring Andrew Jackson, who was a virulent racist right? But all I remember is um, Charlton Heston is mm. Andrew Jackson, and what a swashbuckling hero he seemed to be. Right. I admired Custer, mm. you know, and and in The Devil Finds Work, James Baldwin says, you know, you watch these films, and as a person of color, you, as a kid, you watch them, and you just watch them. And then at a certain point, you realize, watching Custer with the Native Americans, oh, I'm not Custer, I'm the Native Americans, Mm. right? Mm. And so I believed in all the lies and myths and distortions that we are taught through popular cultures through the way we tell history about America's history of race. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my father made me memorize uh, the Gettysburg Address, which, is a, a great address, a wonderful piece of literature, mm-hmm. but nobody ever taught me Lincoln was actually a racist. You know, I, I I didn't understand that until very late in my life when I began reading about what Lincoln actually said about race. Right now, this doesn't mean he wasn't a great American. It doesn't mean that he, you know, he, we should thank him for a man's for the emancipation proclamation or for keeping the country together but he was a racist you know and when when black ministers came to the white house he told them the least white man is better than the best black man and he said you will never become part of america
2: hmm.
1: and he he said you know, you'd be better off going back to Africa or going elsewhere because you're never going to be part of America. Now, the the common even sort of liberal view is, well, you have to judge Lincoln by the tenor of his times, right? We can't impose contemporary, you know, uh, morality and political understandings of race upon Lincoln, which... I agree in part, we have to understand Lincoln against the context of his times. But even in the context of his times,
2: Mm.
1: when you say he was advanced in his times, who are we talking about?
2: Mm. We're
1: only talking about white people
2: Mm -hmm.
1: because the majority (laughs) of black people thought that they were equal to white people. Those black ministers who came to the White House, thought they, were, they should be part of America and were equal to white people. But why aren't they part of the moral climate of Lincoln's time?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what you realize is when white people are talking about judging Lincoln against the moral tenor of his times, they're not thinking about black people as Americans. And that excising of black Americans from being American is not taking place in the past. It's taking place in the present. Now, remember back in the day, um, there was a white baseball league and a Negro baseball league. And there were great black black players who never got to compete, right? Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you're you're going back in the past and creating only a white moral league. Mm -hmm. And the white people can never be judged against the moral judgment of black people. And ironically, at every period of American history, it is black people who have been correct about the racial issues of their time. And the majority of white people are have been wrong. And yet white America has never turned to black people and said, you know, we got it wrong every single time in our history. We got it wrong in slavery. We got it wrong in Jim Crow and segregation. We got it wrong during the civil rights era. Maybe we should listen to you in the present mm-hmm. since we got it wrong every single time in American history. That never happens. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: You you make that point so well. The, you know, you're talking about Lincoln, you know, products of his time, blah, blah, blah. I mean, how do you the quote you shared with the, with the ministers, the three or four other quotes you have from him? I mean, how do you possibly read those quotes and not say, "Whoa, that's absolutely racist"? In any time, I've I've heard people from the time from the from the era of slavery and such, you know, talk about even you know the racial slurs were horrific, but sometimes the worst was like the page. I think of patronizing that quote that you shared, where Lincoln is literally yeah. saying, you know, "Oh, you know, you know, you would be better." Like, like you talk about in the book, just this idea of, of whiteness as default, right? Is that everything else is in relation to ideas of whiteness. Let me tell you where you would be better off. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, no, well, yes. and,
1: and it's not just Lincoln. It, you know, Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry in 1962 and a number of other black artists and intellectuals came to the White House to talk to Robert Kennedy. Mm. And one of the young black activists said, you know, I, I... I don't know if i can fight for this country right i mean i'm denied equal rights in this country i'm denied the the ability to vote in the south Mm -hmm. and robert kennedy said said to them well you, you know you know well if you wait 40 years um probably there could be a black president and actually he was right wow yeah but but baldwin said to him look your family came here about 1910 my family has been here for 300 years and yet your brother is president and my family still has to my people still have to wait to become president and 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 Kennedy afterwards thought that that Baldwin was a kook
2: hmm.
1: and after the meeting he ordered the FBI to open a file on Baldwin
0: Oh, God, I didn't know that.
1: So we look at Kennedy, and he was, in many ways, a great liberal of his times. Right. But Lorraine Hansberry stomped out of the meeting saying, look, if you don't understand this young black man and his anger and outrage at the ways he has been deprived of of his basic rights as American, you will never understand us. Hmm. And then she walked out.
0: Wow. The, what's the book? Uh, everything I, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Some of that effect. I mean, yeah. I've read, I've read a lot about Baldwin. I've read, you know, a lot of historians write about Baldwin. The way that you use his writing, it's like you could almost write a, you could write a book on, you know, everything I need to know I learned from Baldwin. I mean, some just amazing stuff. And the way that you extend some of his points or, or put them in a more modern sense is, is pretty incredible. There's, there's so much there. And he, he lived a fairly short life, right? Maybe in the '60s that he passed away. Yeah. Yeah. I know the expression is so hackneyed, but it's just like he was so ahead of his time, seemingly, but also of his time so much, right?
1: Yes, but the thing about Baldwin is that he understood race not simply as a political problem or issue; mm-hmm. he saw it as a moral issue, right, 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 right. as a spiritual issue
2: uh-huh.
1: and a psychological issue. Mm-hmm. And it is because he understands race at a psychological. And spiritual level, that he tells us truths about the way we have processed race, which really are timeless, and which demonstrate mm-hmm. how much more deeply systemic racism runs through our culture, society, and history mm-hmm. than many of us understand.
0: Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, in teaching uh, the you know the American Dream, which is you know kind of that generic thing, a lot of I like at the English eleven level you'll teach that or whatever. And I showed them a little bit from Baldwin and I can't remember the name, but one of the famous like intellectuals of the time, you know, you know how they'd be on like, gosh, what's his name? I can see him now. One of the the TV. Oh, yeah. The Dick Cavett Show. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. The Dick
1: Cavett Show. Thank yeah.
0: you. And I, and I mean, we had students with like they're almost literally the jaws on the floor. I mean, just as an orator and just a, as a debater, just incredible. But again, this sounds so cheesy and undone, overdone. But it's just like it sounded like he was talking about 2021. Yeah, it was 1962 or whatever it was. Thank you for the, for that, for those explanations. I wanted to ask you. Then you talk Baldwin, of course. I know you said you pointed to maybe Franz Fanon and, and Morrison. Maybe one or two of these pieces, these texts that were so, um, like Baldwin said, what something about what putting not pants on fire, but he has something about fire. Right, that put you on fire that they that, that, that gave you chills at will, like the name of this podcast. Yeah. what was some of those those first texts that made you just kind of almost like change your world view.
1: Well, when Bolton says in The Devil finds work, the question of identity is a question inducing the most profound panic, hmm. a terror as primary as the nightmare of the mortal fall. And he says, you know, identities change, for instance, he says that the splendid in society have no intention of surrendering the splendor. All they know is that they're splendid and they flaunt it day by day. He says the, the oppressed, they know they're oppressed Mm. and they suffer it day by day. And he says identities only shift when the wretched begin to rise or the splendid begin to fall,
2: Mm.
1: which happens in, for instance, in revolutions. But then he says, or, When the stranger enters the gates, never thereafter, forever after making you the stranger, less to the stranger than to yourself. And what he means is like you live in a village and everybody thinks like you, everybody worships the same God, you all speak the same language. And then this stranger comes in and goes, No, we worship different gods, we speak a different language, we look at the world differently, and we look at you differently than you look at yourself. Hmm. And Baldwin says, at that point, you are called to question your own identity. Mm-hmm. But he says, Identity, we should look at identity a little like the robes of the desert, through which one's nakedness can be felt and sometimes discerned. It is this belief and acceptance of one nakedness which will allow one to change one's robes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this this passage, which is just really brilliant explains the present moment because in america what happened with the election of obama is that a which is an example of a white backlash which has taken place at every point in american history when black people have made legal or political advances Mm -hmm. the white population a a large portion of the white population has worked to uh, thwart those advances Mm. and to regress to the previous Mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. So with the election of Obama, a portion of the white population freaked out and go, oh my God, there's a black person in charge of this. I am terribly frightened of this. And it was also evidence of the shifting demographics of America. Because as we all know, by 2040, sometime after that, white people will no longer be the majority in this country. We will all be racial minorities.
2: Hmm.
1: And so this is an example of power shifting. Mm -hmm. And white people are freaked out. And this goes back to Baldwin's original statement in that passage. The question of identity is a question inducing the most, most profound panic, a terror as primary as that of the mortal fall. Which means changing one's identity or questions one's identity is as scary as confronting the fact you're gonna die.
0: It is, and so many
1: white Americans feel like in this multiracial America, if I have to shift my identity, my place in the culture, my belief that I am central, that I define what America is, mm-hmm. that's as scary to them as death. And that's why they cling to their white identity.
0: It, is the mortal fall that he talks about, I mean, is that is that literally death or is it like the biblical fall? It's both. It's both. It, it's both
1: because Baldwin was a child preacher he knew right his
0: father, right back right, and right, forth, right right so so speaking of him and like kind of his childhood like would you think Baldwin would have been Baldwin that we know if you know, you're right about how he, I don't know, the first 15, 20 years of his life, he was in Harlem, We know, which is such a center yeah. of black life in America, and didn't really necessarily see white people or know racism in that same way. Yeah. Do you think he would have been the same person if he hadn't been able to establish, you know, himself as a black man amongst other black people? Do you think that made a huge difference that he had those 15 or 20 years in Harlem before he kind of, you know, went out? I mean, he was in Paris for a while, right? And
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, but he has a very you know, he talks about this in, in his most famous essay, Notes of the Native Son. Mm-hmm. So he, he says, you know, I grew up in Harlem among black people, but we knew there were racists because there were racist cops.
2: Sure. But
1: in general, I lived, lived a life among black people. Mm-hmm. And then during World War II, because of the war, he was allowed to work in a um, wartime factory in New Jersey. And he suddenly uh, was in a place where there was de facto or not legal segregation, but he didn't realize it. He said, I went to the lunch counter and I ordered something, and then I'd pick up a hamburger. And only later, much later, I realized, no, that hamburger was not meant for me. They were never going to serve me. And this happened one time in a restaurant. He got so angry. He says, I went to the poshest restaurant around town, place where I knew they would not serve me. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and the waitress said, uh, we, we don't serve Negroes here. And he said, I beg your pardon. He wanted her to come close, and she yeah, wouldn't. She yeah. just repeated. And he took a water glass and threw it at her. It hit the mirror behind the bar, shattered the whole restaurant, just fell silent. And he goes, Oh, my God, What have I done? He runs out this this bound, this burly waiter or somebody tries to stop him, he gets out. and he says, after that, I realized that this anger that was building in me would either lead me to being killed, lead me to killing somebody, or lead me to killing myself. Mm. And that is really why he he felt he had to get out of America and go to France.
2: Yeah. So so and he, he was, had to
1: one he he really had to deal with the dilemma of what am I to do with this rage and bitterness I have over race. And he he says at the end the essay, you know if you hate white people it's going to destroy your soul. But it's really difficult to love them for the things they're doing to me and my community. So what do you do?
0: Yeah, that the the story of the the water glass. I mean, that was just uh, so so visual. You feel like you were there with him. I just feel like he had everything figured out in life. Obviously, he didn't. Nobody ever does. But just he. Uh, what what do you think about that kind of that fine line he had of forgiving people who maybe who don't deserve to be forgiven, but also that he had, like you said, he had to for his own spiritual well being. Right. He, I mean, would you say that he felt like it was a necessity? that he had to f- well, maybe forgive is not even
2: a to, word. He had
1: to learn it. And, and the thing that, that happened to him took place in his a shift in his understanding of white people and a shift in his understanding of black people.
2: Mm.
1: Now, with black people, um, he went down to the South during the Civil Rights era to do reporting. And at one point, I think it's in Notes of Native Son, he talks about How he makes the same mistake in the South. He goes to a restaurant, enters the front door, thinking he's going to be served. And they tell them, no, no, this is a segregated restaurant. If you want anything, you have to go up back and get your meal through the back door. So unlike when he's 21, he doesn't throw a glass, he doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. He goes back and he finds this old black man eating his meal peacefully. And he realizes like, this older black man has suffered far more than I have. And yet he's not allowing yeah. this obvious evil racist system
2: mm-hmm.
1: to destroy his soul, Yeah, to make himself eaten up by anger and bitterness. Right. And he says after that, that throughout the South, When I traveled during the Civil Rights, I looked in the eyes of old black men and black women, and I tried to understand what I saw there about what they had experienced Mm -hmm. and how they had survived. And what he realizes is that it has taken great strength, great spiritual resilience Mm -hmm. and wisdom for the black people in the South to have survived slavery, Jim Crow, And he comes to admire his own people in a different way.
2: Hmm.
1: But at the same time, you know, he was gay, he was an artist, he was doing interviews with people, you know, white people. And he he said, the more I began to learn about white people, the more I saw how frightened they were,
2: Hmm.
1: how weak they were, Hmm. how privately they were not like how they purported themselves to be he, mm-hmm. he he interviews i think some governor politician in the south uh who makes a pass at him right you know a devout segregationist sure, right sure, who sure, makes sure. It. And, and suddenly he says no these white people believe in the myths they tell themselves about themselves
2: mm.
1: and he says the black man i can't believe those myths
2: mm. my
1: survival depends upon not believing those myths yes because those myths tell me of lies not only about who white people are but they tell me lies about who i am Hmm. and if i start to believe those lies i am lost
0: yeah that the the anecdote about the man at the you know eating with dignity is just again so such one of those great stories anecdotes that you put in this book that is so telling do you know have you heard of the writer gustavo arellano so he's mostly based out of Southern California. He wrote a, a satirical column called Ask a Mexican back in the day. It was, it was syndicated. But, you know, he writes for the L.A. Times now. And he was talking about, um, oh gosh, Tancredo, I want to say. He was the Colorado governor, maybe. Tom mm-hmm. Tancredo, something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. And, you know, virulent anti-immigration, you know, very, you know, racist statements towards toward Latinos, Hispanics. And so Gustavo talks about interviewing Tom Tancredo with his anti-Mexican uh, you know insults. And Tom said, Hey, can we meet at a Mexican restaurant? Right. You're talking you're talking about the the racist governor of the South who make who makes a pass at James Baldwin. You know, not exactly the same thing, of course, yeah. but but uh wow. Um and obviously, you know, the story you tell about him in New Jersey, you know, is reason number one million and seventy five that, you know, we often think, oh, racism is only in the south. Obviously not. Obviously not. That New Jersey, like you said, was just like segregationism. You make really interesting points in the book about shame versus guilt, right? That, you know, that we, you know, we as white people, just that difference, there is a difference you're saying. And and the difference is the way back to some sort of understanding, the, the way back to understanding that this world was, this, this country was built on white supremacy. You make the great point that, you know, they're totally in contrast with, you know, the the things that the United States supposedly stands for democracy, freedom, all men are created equal. How can that possibly be in line with, right. With, with white supremacy and, you know, Lincoln and Jefferson and all of them and all of their deeds. My long-winded question, I guess, then is shame and guilt. What is the difference and where maybe is a little bit of a, of a road to some sort of, of, of white people of us, you know, unremembering, or I should say, remembering more, knowing the true ways in which this country was built and continues to, to work against minorities and people of color. Shame and guilt. What's the difference?
1: Well, before I answer, I'm going to set this up by reading a paragraph in the book. Please do. Which us get it. From its very beginnings, America had two irreconcilable goals. That's the one. One yeah. was to seek equality, freedom and democracy. The other was to maintain white supremacy and denominate domination by white people over any people of color. White America is fine with telling our tale through the lens of the first goal, but it's still decidedly not fine with telling the second story of America's treatment of people of color and America's desire to maintain white supremacy. All the recent ridiculous, distorting, disparaging and damning of critical race theory are just the latest manifestation of this repression. Now, one of the ways I talk about you know the desire to not teach our racial history with people like DeSantis or Tom Senator Tom Cotton is what they're saying is the problem is not the way that white people have abused black people throughout history and into the present. The problem is that black people keep remembering this abuse and telling white people about it, which somehow harms white people. Hmm. And as I point out in my book, this is the psychology of the abuser.
2: Because
1: hmm. what, what are spousal abusers saying? It's Why not me it's causing the abuse. If you keep telling me about the abuse, you keep remembering the abuse. Everything mm-hmm. would be fine if you didn't remember that I hit you.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: And so the problem of race is, is as much a psychological and spiritual problem
2: mm-hmm. as
1: it is a political problem. Mm-hmm. Now, here we get to the issues of shame and guilt. And mm-hmm. before I... But I want to preface this by saying, and I say this to audiences, I'm not here to shame and guilt you. That, that's, you know, I don't know you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know whether you're a good or bad person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That That's not my place to judge, right? What I am saying is that white supremacy and the system of racism has been systemic and has been, had a crucial Force in shaping American history, culture, and society from the beginning of America, from 1619 to the present. Mm-hmm. And I am asking you to accept this, not it, a, a, as a fact,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. Now, you can accept this fact or deny it, right? But what I think that white people do is they hear this and they go, oh, God it makes me feel shameful. And shame means you, you feel like there's something bad about you, right? And if you go into shame, you're not going to be able to hear me. Sure. And even if you feel guilty, you go like, well, I'm not responsible for my ancestors, right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying racism has been systemic since the beginning of America. Do you accept this fact or not? Hmm. Now, people go into denial about it. And remember when I said, you know, when Baldwin says, like, you know, changing one's identity is frightening as dealing with one's mortality, which one's fallibility, you know, original sin, right? Mm-hmm. So I liken this to uh, Helen Kubler Ross's book on death and dying,
2: mm-hmm. where
1: she talks about the way people deal with the knowledge that they will die, like when you have an illness or cancer or something and you have to confront that you may die. Mm -hmm. And she says the first stage is denial. The second stage is anger. The third stage is bargaining. The fourth stage is grief. And the fifth stage is acceptance. Well, people go through this in their denial of racism. First, there is no racism. White people are more discriminated against you know, than than people of color, right? And then it's anger. Why are you bringing this up? We had a perfectly fine college or school till you started bringing it up. We had a perfectly fine business till you started talking about microaggressions. America was perfect. It was great back in, I don't know, when we had segregation, when we had slavery, I don't know when America was great, but it was perfect. And now you have ruined it by bringing up the subject of race. And then there comes bargaining. Okay, okay, there's there's racism, but it's not systemic. You know, you know, it's a few bad apples.
2: Mm.
1: Now, as Chris Rock said, would you want to fly in an airline that had a few bad apples as pilots? Right. Would you want to be operated on the surgery department that had a few bad apples? Mm. But of course, it's, it's, it's not. You don't get the statistics that we get in terms of racial disparities in every area of our society, in politics, in economics, in in cultural representation, in medicine, in our health system. So it is shame which keeps white people from getting over the denial of the systemic racism that runs through American history. And they make it personal.
2: Mm. And I'm
1: not making it personal. I'm saying these are historical facts. Right. Right. Um, You have been taught a series of lies and myths about our past. And you've come to believe them. And I am asking you to re-look at these myths and lies and see what they leave out. And what they leave out is both... Truths about white Americans, about what I, white America has done, mm-hmm. but it also leaves out the consciousness, experience, and narratives of African Americans right. and other people of color. And it is denied that there's another view of our history which we are not taught. And if Ron DeSantis has his way, we will never be taught.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Right. Now, I mean, like DeSantis, you know, he wants to ban this AP studies course, advanced placement college course that high school students take on African-American studies. And he has deemed it lacking educational value. Now, this was a course created by African-American writers and scholars, right?
0: Think about how Disant- dismissive that is, right? That is so dis- yeah. incredibly this, dismissive. This
1: is, is, is is not an African-American scholar.
0: He doesn't have a Ph.D. in history,
1: but he feels perfectly fine saying this course lacks educational value. And one of the things that he's doing in this is he's demonstrating one of the core values of white supremacy. And that is white knowledge is always valid, objective, true, and official. Mm -hmm. White knowledge is always valid, objective, true, and official. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: In contrast, Black knowledge is always automatically invalid, subjective, false or suspicious
2: Mm. and
1: unofficial unless white people say otherwise. Mm. So he is saying, I as a white person, my knowledge is valid, objective, true and official. And you black writers who've actually lived black lives, you black historians and scholars who've actually studied this, your knowledge
2: Mm.
1: is invalid subjective, false, and unofficial. Wow. And that, what, what that's called is how we evaluate knowledge is an area of epistemology. And I'm, what I'm trying to do in the book is make very difficult concepts understandable mm-hmm. to the reader. You did. Look at the, the idea, this mm-hmm. idea of whose word, whose narrative is considered true and valid. Mm-hmm. It runs through police reports, mm-hmm. it runs through our politics, it runs through the way we, we we form our culture. And the other thing about this is, is DeSantis is actually repeating the acts of slave owners mm. because when the Africans got here and were enslaved, they were forbidden from teaching their language. Right. They were forbidden from teaching a the culture. They were forbidden from teaching their history. And that is exactly what Desantis is doing to African Americans in the present.
0: Oh, man, so much to go on there. My, my mind is over is overblown. The uh, so I, I went to high school literally on the same street, a mile down the road from Chris Rufo, CRT guy, right? The guy, oh, yeah. who, the one who literally, you know, has put it out in writing, like we're going to attack, you know, this and this and this. I'm 43. I think he's maybe a few years younger than me. He's, you know, he's young-ish, right? With the Santas, you're talking about Baldwin. You know, the old days or maybe not so much. We know that racism's not just going to die with older people. You know, you see, uh, what's his name, Fuentes, and all these guys, right? Nick Fuentes. Is there something to the fact? Do you see? I know you have, um, you work with 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 kids and with the youth, and you have kids yourself. Do you see some positive? Changes. Do you see the younger generations being exposed to more ideas, to a less ethnocentric, to a less Euro Eurocentric, you know, curriculum of world? I mean, do you see some bright spots there?
1: No, it's absolutely true, and it it, it extends to other marginalized groups, like LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, Americans, right? I mean, when I grew up, I knew nothing about LGBTQ. LD- LGBTQ people, you know, my, my kids, you know, that was just the, you know, they, they knew about, uh, that community, the, had friends from that community, Mm -hmm. just like they've grown up in a multiracial America. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what the conservatives are afraid of. Yes. It's like moms for Liberty wants to ban the story of Ruby Bridges. Now, for those of you who don't know, Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old Black girl who, in 1960, bravely desegregated the New Orleans school. And in order to do that, she had to walk past a crowd of jeering, spitting, shouting white adults Mm -hmm. to get to school. Now, Moms for Liberty says, oh, that will hurt my poor white children. That's not why. My children are half white, half Asian American. They read those books. They weren't hurt by them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What Moms for Liberty is actually afraid of, which is what happened to my kids, is my kids thought, this is this little girl was so brave. She was so admirable. And she was, even at six years old, so instrumental in the fight for social justice and civil rights.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I so admire her. And it... it shaped my children's view of not only of american history or themselves but also their values in life right and that's what moms for liberty are afraid of that Mm -hmm. their children not that they will be hurt by the story but they will
0: identify with ruby bridges Right, right 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 i mean could there be a more innocuous story you know what i mean like you know even if you're just the most cynical person in the world how could you possibly say anything about ruby bridges and what she did And like you said, Roms of Liberty somehow somehow did. But they
1: they understand the effect. If you actually tell the truth of American history to children, mm -hmm. it is hard for them to grow up to be racist. It is hard for them to grow up to be white supremacists.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so that's why they want to deny that history.
0: Mm. And I mean, like you said, she was six years old. She's not, I mean, she's still alive and thriving, right? I mean, it wasn't that long yes, ago. Yeah, she's, no. she's in her 60s, maybe? No, and if Moms for Liberty were afraid of narratives
1: that hurt children, they would be vitally concerned with the fact that every African-American parent must tell their children stories of police brutality and police murder at a certain age in order to protect them when they encounter the police. And moms for liberty go, Black parents should not have to tell stories like that to their children. They don't care. Mm. They Mm. don't care about Black children. Mm. They don't care about the narratives that these Black parents have to tell their children. Mm -hmm. And they certainly don't want their children to know about the narratives that Black parents must teach their
0: children. Yeah. You, You were talking earlier about Tom Cotton. I mean, he... I'd, I'd known his, uh, some of the horrible things he said, but, you know, you got kind of a list you have in the book. He's, he's from Arkansas. Is that right? Yeah. Right. And, you know, I didn't, you know, Jerry Jones, he's the owner of the Cowboys Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. Right. And you might be able to help me. I you know online. I see that like maybe he literally was in the picture or people started. Yeah. Saying, he was like, in the, you know when James, James me Meredith went right. to
1: the, went, when the Blackstones were integrating um, the university of Mississippi. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, Jerry Jones is in the crowd of white I, people. I think of he's
0: Vancouver, from Arkansas. So maybe was white a, students. Right. I think maybe he was a different student because I think he's from Arkansas. Maybe not. But but definitely, right. So he was literally in the crowd, right? He A.Z. Lehman. am I saying his name right? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, he's, he's an incredible champion of writers and incredible writer by himself, obviously. And you tell that story. You know, I, my long-winded point here is about Tom Cotton or Jerry Jones in that crowd. Like you said, the Moms of Liberty, you know, was... Were they in that crowd with Ruby Bridges? Were there, was their mom in the crowd? You know, I think there's some fear there, right? Like, if you look back, it's like, well, who who were these people? They're, they're us, right? And so, Kiesi Lateman tells that incredible story about, you know, running into, you know, everyone knows, like, kind of the stereotypical frat guys. And, you know, in the South, in this case, in, in Mississippi, and they, you know, the, the white guys were throwing out the racial slurs, all kinds of horrific things. And Kiesi, and I think a friend maybe, For like fighting back. I don't even know if it was literal fighting back or not. You know, they got equal punishment when obviously the the crimes were not even close to the same. And one of those people in the crowd, one of those frat boys, was is now the governor of Mississippi. Am I right? Yes. Yes. I mean,
1: who's the governor of Mississippi? And who was among these frat boys dressed in Confederate uniforms and calling Kiese and his friend, his his girlfriend, the Mm -hmm. N-word. Now, what Casey says is, you know, I was particularly hurt by that because I knew Tate Reeves. We played against him in basketball.
0: Right, right. They had a background. He was
1: was from a public school. Hmm. He wasn't, you know, these rich frat boys. He wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, he didn't go to a private segregated school like some of his rich frat brothers. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew black kids. He played basketball against them. And to see... Tate Reeves, among these people, uh, Kiese says, and I knew then he could become governor or president. Man. And it exactly, because rather than, you know, because what he's saying is Tate Reeves was a working class kid, Mm. but he sided with these elites and their racism. And that is the bargain that has been offered the white working class Mm-hmm. throughout American history because mm-hmm. you know I didn't put this in my book because I didn't know it till afterwards but when America first sort of officially designated the categories of blackness and whiteness it took place in 1676 after Bacon's rebellion okay. and Bacon's rebellion was a rebellion of white working class and poor farmers. Mm. And what the elite meant is, oh, Jesus, these people are really angry. They're going to come after us. So what do we do? Let's make these categories of whiteness and blackness. And we'll say to these poor white people, you're white. You're just like us. Mm. And you can just hate black people and think they're inferior like us. Mm. And we'll give you that rather than economic equality. Mm. And... The elites have been selling that to the white working class from that point forward. Yeah, Race, you are white. And if you start siding with black people, you won't get economic freedom. You won't be better off economically. You will lose your whiteness.
0: You write so well, so, so movingly about because of systemic racism, Tate Reeves, let say he would have to abandon whiteness. You know, it's, it's, it's across a couple bridges, so to speak, you know, right? It's, he has to, he has to move a lot. He has to abandon that whiteness. Cause like you said, it's been in, whether he knew it or not, whether he said it subconsciously or not, he felt he had more in common, right? With those rich prick frat boys than he did with the guy he played, you know, grew up with and went to school with, right? You make a great point about this idea of people... I mean, it goes right to DeSantis and what you're saying about him. Social scientists have studied people who know less about a subject always, if not often, overestimate their knowledge. DeSantis knows what it's like. Like you said, right? As With whiteness being the norm, the default mode, he, he figures he knows way, way more than he does. He has no idea about the, the lived experience of so many people, right? Of black people, of people of color. How do... You know, you talk about, um, I don't know, in reading this book, right? It teaches me so many times that, of course, reading does not solve racism. Of course not. But reading and empathy, these are the ways, like you talk about in things that you read, how do you not gain some sort of sympathy or empathy in knowing other people's stories, right? And getting Mm -hmm. people's stories out there. I guess my question is, you know, you hear a lot of people say, especially, you know, after George Floyd and things like that, like, I want to learn. I want to learn. How does that become a thing where somebody who's ignorant by definition does not know others' experiences? How do we how does a person say, you know, I'm asking for help here without burdening the person?
1: In my book, The Story's Whiteness tells itself, I lay out some things that white people can do. And the reason why I know this, Peter, is because I grew up being white identify <laughs> I grew up wanting to be a white person. Sure. I didn't I grew up in a, in, in a white Jewish suburb of Chicago. There were 3,200 kids in that school, and the only people of color were 10 Asians, and I was related to five of them.
0: Like 0.004 or something, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Man. And so there were there were actually no, except for Evanston, there were no black people in the north shore of Chicago, in mm. the suburbs. So I didn't grow up knowing black people. I didn't know growing black culture, black history. So I had to do a lot of reading. And, and learning. So that's the first thing that white people can begin to do. But learning is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Sure. And if you live a life where you're only living among and and connecting socially with white people, you're not going to understand race in America.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You, you know, it, as they say, the most segregated hour of American society is... Uh, 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, right? You need to restructure your life so that you have a more diverse set of contacts. Mm. And when you have those contacts, you have to listen, Yeah. right? You have to listen. I mean, I'll give you just two personal examples. So my friend Alex and I, we were, we, we he's a novelist, and we were doing a play together, uh, and then a film. And so we were in New York, because we co-wrote and performed in this short film. And we were staying in a hotel, and the hotel was on a side street, right? So we come out of the hotel, and uh, I say, let's get a cab. And Alex says to me, uh, I say, let's go down to Broadway. Where there's more cabs
2: mm-hmm.
1: right and Alex says to me no we got to stay here because he says at least if I'm here the cab driver might will think I'm staying at the hotel mm-hmm. because I'm a black man with dreads mm-hmm. and if I go down to Broadway they're just the cabs are just ignored me that was nothing I thought about right right and then I remember the first time you know one of the first times I was hanging around with a a number of Black artists. And these were, you know, people gone to Yale, directors, you know, artists, writers, and about seven of them. And they were all telling tales of being arrested while driving while Black. And they were telling these tales, and they were laughing. And they were laughing with pain. Mm. Right, and they were laughing because it happened to all of them. And I realized first, I don't think about that mm. as an Asian American.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, I grew up as a middle class Asian. You know, if you're a working class Asian American in an urban area, you might think about that, but not as a suburban Asian American, right? Mm. And I also realized they probably wouldn't have been saying that if a white guy had been at the table.
2: Mm.
1: Because they would have feared that the white guy would have took their humor as being dismissive uh-huh. to the pain and humiliation that they felt sure. being arrested, driving while black. Yeah, yeah. And because my, you know, I was friend, my friend Alex, you know, had brought me to the dinner that, and I knew some of these artists. They, they, they understood that I would understand the context of that. Mm. Because it's not only understanding you know, this, this is why Dave Chappelle stopped telling doing his comedy because he felt like the white people were not hearing the humor in the same way that a black person,
0: would. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, especially with his show, right? You're talking about his yeah. show, I think. I think, yeah. I think, wow, thank you for those anecdotes. The the writer you're talking about, uh, last name starts with a P, Alex Pate, right? So really telling anecdote too, just with Steven Spielberg with Amistad, right? The movie. Am I, am I way off on the time? I, I feel like that was like in the early, in the late nineties or was it? Yeah, it was that? in the nineties. And yeah. what
1: happened was that, you know, this, it was a film created by D- Steven Spielberg and two white screenwriters. Mm-hmm. Right. And then my friend, Alex Pate, who's an African-American novelist was asked to write the novelization of the script. Now, in the film, it opens with the Africans in chains. And they break their chains and kill some of the Spanish sailors and attempt to force them to sail to Africa.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, there are no subtitles. But you could have had subtitles. Sure. So the the American audience doesn't understand what the Africans are saying. Mm -hmm. They don't understand the circumstances. I mean, these could be prisoners, right? And their first act is an act of violence against white people. Mm. And then the Spanish sailors tricked them and sailed to America, where the government must decide whether they are free human beings or slaves. Yeah, 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 right. And the whole film is told. Mainly through the eyes of Matthew McConaughey, who's a young lawyer trying to defend these, uh, you know, get the freedom from these Africans. Mm. And he's trying to enlist the help of John Quincy Adams. Mm. And it's his quest. Sure. Alex looked at this opening scene and went, because he had to use everything from the no- from the film. Yeah. But he said, I can't start the novel here. So he starts the novel in Africa. Sinke is sleeping in a village, his village, with his wife and child. Mm -hmm. So he has a family. Right. He has a village.
2: Right.
1: He has a culture. He's not somebody that you don't understand because Alex places you in his consciousness, Mm -hmm. in his head. Mm -hmm. He's not indecipherable. He's not inscrutable. He's Mm -hmm. a man with a family. And he feels uneasy and he goes out at night and it turns out a lion attacks the village and he kills the lion. So he saves, his act is an act of violence. He saves the village. Mm -hmm. Why did Alex intuitively think I can't start the novel there? Because he starts the novel in Africa we're seeing, you know, W.E.B. Du said, you know, in his famous book, *The Souls of Black Folk*, he says, "How does it feel to be a problem?"
2: Mm.
1: Well, in Africa, Sinke's blackness is not a problem.
2: Mm.
1: It's not a question. Mm. It's not even there's the the idea of blackness and whiteness is not present. So it's outside of the categories of whiteness and blackness. Mm. Moreover, he doesn't have to go to white people to go, am I a human being or a slave? Hmm. So he starts it outside, and this is another philosophical term I use in the stories, whiteness tells itself, ontology, outside the categories of whiteness and blackness. Mm-hmm. Now, Steven Spielberg is a liberal. He's adopted a couple of black children. He's, you know, he he, he intended this film to be anti-racist, but he couldn't imagine how an African-American would view that film. Mm-hmm. Mm. And he couldn't start the film outside of white thought mm. and white conception sure. of who Black people are. Yeah, And so yeah. it's the same story, but it's different. Alex's novel is an African-American novel.
0: Mm.
1: And as Spielberg's own partner, David Geffen, said, Spielberg's film is a white savior film.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And Alex's hero is Sinkay, and I teach narrative. The protagonist has a goal, so mm. it's a different protagonist. It's Sinkay. It's not the young lawyer, and Sinkay's goal is to get his gain his freedom and return to Africa, mm. which is a different goal than the Matthew McConaughey. So it's sure. a different story.
2: Sure.
1: And so it shows the inability. Of white people to imagine narratives which center black people, black consciousness.
0: What a simple but revolutionary thing that Chinua Achebe did, right? When things fall apart. Yeah to write about yeah, Africa. And it's the same thing. You
1: know, I, I love it, because those of you who don't know Heart's Darkness is about the Congo and the and, and the ivory trade, and it's set, you know, in, in the late 19th century. And it, these white guys going up the, the Congo River are looking at the Black people on, on, on the shore, shouting at them and thinking, these are unintelligible savages. And Ajebe, when he was, you know, he grew up in the colonial English, uh, colonial school system. He identified with with the white guys.
2: Mm.
1: And then it is just like me. And at a certain point, though, he realized, wait a second. Those Africans on the shore would be my grandparents? Right. My great-grandparents? Do I think they were unintelligible savages? No. And so he writes his own novel, Things Fall Apart, which is set right before and after the europeans come to africa mm-hmm. and it's an entirely different tale than the heart of conrad's
0: heart of darkness sure well yeah i mean thank you for sharing for expanding on the the uh the amistad i mean in the book is so interesting because like you said it just you know right i mean what is it the the road to hell is paved with good intentions <laughs> That's a little dark with it right but I mean I, I think we'd probably both agree for Spielberg Spielberg had good intentions but that's not enough obviously right is it you're saying it was not enough um the white savior complex comes through for sure some of his his blind spots some of our blind spots is, as white people and as we know as you know as such a great writer and me as a lover of literature unfortunately the movie got got read or seen right a lot more than than the book did Right. I'm sure that Amistad was seen by way more sets of eyes than the novelization um, by you know by your friends. The
1: oh, and if they made that film, it would have been less popular. Right. Because while people of color, we grow up, we can't help but see narratives and movies and films of white people. mhm you like, just and, and but if you're a white person, you can avoid knowing any narratives yeah. in films yes. about people of color. Right.
0: This is outside of your book, but, um, you know, it, this happened fairly recently, very recently. Um, so, you know, to end your book, you, you even have a you, you talk, of course, about George Floyd. You mentioned Douglas Kearney, who is somebody who was so good to me in my classes. He would come and speak and perform. He's a, a poet, a, a librettist, you know, just a what is it, MacArthur genius grant. Like he's the kind of guy I should get one of those. But he's he's a, a Minnesota based uh, writer now. But, you know, he was talking about having to explain, I, I want to say maybe he has twins, yeah. to his six, right, to his, his six-year-olds at the time. I have to explain to them, you know, George Floyd and Dante Wright and Philando Castile and all of these names and just talks about just the 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 absolutely human anger, the human just like burden that that puts on him. And that was so moving. And you talked about how you were going to end the book before that, but you decided to end it with a coda, which is Dante Wright. Who yeah. was even after George George Floyd? Yeah. Like you said, at least, even if it's not a moral choice, maybe it's just a political, uh, I don't know, not getting your butt in, pr- in prison choice, that the police would at least be like, hey, okay, we're not going to hurt him. But, you know, again, Dante Wright, unfortunately, was another. You know, Dante Wright
1: was originally stopped for a taillight and having air fresheners. How, 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 many, how
0: many taillights have I had out in my lifetime? How many times have my license plate not been? And I never, I've never, i never had, I, I don't know. When,
1: when, when people, uh, let me tell two things about systemic racism. You know, Douglas is just absolutely angered that he has to tell these tales to his children. Mm-hmm. But before that, I talk about a teacher in the mainly black North side right. of Minneapolis And she asked her 7th grade class, which was 95% Black, to write a piece on what America means to them. And she says 100% of them wrote about police harassment. That was their definition. That was what America meant to them. Mm -hmm. How can you say racism is not systemic?
0: But what about Minnesota Knives?
1: Minnesota and ICE is is is, is <laughs> we have as large we don't have the same level of poverty as Mississippi, but our racial disparities in every area, education, economics, yeah. health, are 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 simply just as large. Right, 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 right. And you know, for instance, it's changing now, fortunately, because we're legalizing marijuana, but black people and white people smoke marijuana at exactly the same rate. Right, right, right. And yet Black people are, sometimes it's four times, sometimes it's 3.64 times more likely to be arrested for smoking marijuana for the same crime. Then they are more likely to be uh, brought to trial, more likely to be convicted, more likely to suffer prison time, and suffer longer prison time than white people for the same crime. Yeah. Now... This doesn't happen because of a few bad apples. Sure, sure. This discrepancy, it's built into... Now, it, it, in my book, I allow I allude to... There was this Georgia case in the death penalty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Georgia prosecutors sought the death penalty, 70% of the cases involving Black defendants and white victims. But if you... <laughs> Uh, a white person who killed a black person, the death penalty is only sought 19% times. So same act, 70% if it's a black person committing it, 19% if it's uh, a white person committing it. But the Supreme Court ruled that absent any declaration of racist intent, they could not rule this unconstitutional. Uh And what what he said is, taken to its logical conclusions, this case throws into serious question the principles that underlie our criminal justice system. If we accepted McClesty's claim that racial bias has impermissibly tainted the capital sentencing decision, we could soon be faced with similar claims as to other types of penalty. So whatever the risk of ruling against, they couldn't rule against this, Rule that this was unconstitutional, it had to be constitutionally acceptable, because otherwise, they would have to question race and the whole system of uh-huh. the whole justice. Right. So it's like, we're going to bury our heads in the sand. Because otherwise, we're going to have to complicate like that racism runs through. So, and, and part of what lost. I'm saying is here is, it's not just a few bad apples. Yeah. It's the way the law is interpreted. Right. Right. Because anybody looking at it go, man, if you're a black person and you kill white people, you're seventy percent of the time gonna get the death bill. If Mm a white person kills a black person, only nineteen percent of you are gonna get receive the death bill.
0: Sure.
2: But that's
1: not systemic. Sure. And and this is what I mean when they're they're the myths that we tell ourselves about race in America.
0: Yep. You, you were referencing Chappelle earlier. He had, you know, there's behind every joke, there's a seed of truth. He was talking about was like police brutality against people of color, especially black men. And he was saying, you know, white people didn't think it was true until they read about it in Newsweek. And then they knew it was true. Right. And this idea of like, uh, you, you talk about the 100%. Thank you for bringing up that. I, I knew there was something about 100%. I wanted to bring up it was a Miss Rodriguez's class, right? You talk about 100%. Yeah. Of the students said, please. You know, how, how do we as white people not read something like that? And just, it has to be willful ignorance, right? Ignorance is by itself, not a bad thing. You simply don't know if you have never skied before. It's not your fault if you know, no one's like to ski, but to hear, you know, a hundred percent of the students, and I'm sure, right. The numbers wouldn't be that different in other places say that it has to be willful ignorance, right? It has to be, I don't want to know anything differently because if I do, I'm going to have to empathize.
1: And it's also life experience. If you ask an all-white suburb, like of Winnetka in Chicago, Mm -hmm. like their definition of America, same seventh graders, they Mm -hmm. would come up with completely different definitions. Sure. They they wouldn't think. But I want to make one last point, because the book is about history. And when people say like, oh, Jefferson held slaves. Yes, but that was so long ago. It has, you know, why are you bringing this up? Well, we know there are racial disparities in, in healthcare. You know, for instance, um black people are three times 6 times more likely to have their legs amputated than white people. Hmm. Black patients are half as likely to receive pain medication as white patients for the same condition. And if they receive pain medication, they receive less pain medication than white patients for the same condition. Hmm. So there's this disparity in the application of pain medication. Now, in 2016, not way back in the 17, 1800s, there was a survey of white medical, 222 white medical students. And half of them professed some form of the belief that black people felt less physical pain than white people. Half of them in 2016. Now, uh, partly because they believe black people have thicker skin, which is just so ironic. Now, Jefferson was the leading ideologist of slavery of his time. Mm -hmm. He believed white people were mentally superior, spiritually superior, culturally superior. And he said black people were better suited for slavery because they felt less physical pain. So this idea that Jefferson is writing in the early 1800s is in half of the minds of these white medical students in 2016. So you can't tell me that the past doesn't affect the present. If you deny the past, you don't understand how the past racism of the past led to the present. It also allows you to low, if you lower the moral bar in the past, right? Oh, slavery is bad, but it wasn't that bad.
2: Mm.
1: It makes it so much easier to lower the bar Mm. in the present. Yeah. Yeah, a few black people get killed by police, but you know, it's only a few. Mm
0: your book unfortunately is very topical unfortunately right i wish it weren't but it's um it draws those connections it's such insightful links between those things that you talk about between a, a hist- you know between a, a country that was built on white supremacy that continues to run on it as if it's coffee all the way up to Philando Castile i will always wonder why the NRA did not fight for him right he was right he was a legal gun owner <laughs>
1: Well, you remember back in the 60s when the Black Panthers showed up at the California state capitol oh, right, with right, armed right. weapons and the California legislature immediately began to work on gun restrictions.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean- So, so
1: gun, guns in the, uh, in, 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 in the hands of white people are perfectly okay. Guns in the hands of black people or other people of color, no. Yes,
0: yes. I mean, it's it's clear through your- you know, the, the multifaceted um, type of writing that you've done over these years, um, you know, you're able to bring in the historical, the socio-cultural, the socioeconomic. Um, it's just an amazing um, uh, achievement that this book is. And the book, again, is The Story's Whiteness Tells Itself. There's so much to be learned. I learned so much through it. There's so much that you brought together. You, you know, you use, you know, that as a, as a student yourself, um, of life of of race of racism you bring in so many you know bright voices like james baldwin the the quotes that you use are so well timed and so well placed um you know just a pleasure to talk to you to be able to get into your brain a little bit and, and talk to you about the the seeds for the book the the connections that you make in the book and how it really connects to today long story short thank you so much and I, I wish you great luck with the rest of your writing Can you uh, tell us any special places we should buy this book in your area in Minnesota online?
1: Yeah. uh, Thank you very much for having me. Um, Many of the independent majors in Quinn is one of the independent bookstores. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Moon Palace is another terrific bookstore. Mm -hmm. Um, Birchwood Books, which is owned by um, Louise Erdrich. Oh, Wow. It's okay. similar to Ann Patchett's bookstore in, in Nashville. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we have great independent bookstores mm-hmm. um around that will carry this book and and
0: uh, yeah. It's it's clear that there's a lot, a lot, a lot, lot going on in that brain. Um, but like you said, you were able to definitely make it, you know, for the for the secular what's the word, not the secular, the uh ordinary reader the ordinary reader I'm, there's a bigger word I can't think of thank you for the ordinary reader ironically you gave me the good word they really made it um, you know manageable for people like us who don't necessarily have the the same background in academia as you do thanks again and just a pleasure like i say continue good luck with your writing thank you What a pleasure it's been today to speak with David Murrah. Thank you so much to him for his time. We wish him the best of luck with all of his writing and scholarship in the future. You can now subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P-O-1. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills of Will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often-ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode one hundred, excuse me, 207 with Ursula Villarreal Mora the author of Math for the Self-Crippling, The Gold Line Press, Fiction Contest winner. Her writing has been nominated for Best of the Net, Best Small Fictions, a Pushcart Prize, and long-listed for Best American Short Stories 2015. The episode will air on October 3rd. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like David Murrah, whose work, like The stories, Whiteness Tells Itself, gives you chills at will.